I'd be in gown and like sterile procedure and cutting open mice and like talking about growing these pink oysters back in my basement. (laughs) I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Okay, I know what you're thinking. This girl's obsessed with mushrooms because we just had Jared, the mushroom YouTuber, a few months ago to talk about the fungi life cycle and magic mushrooms. Well, to set the record straight, I'm actually not a huge mushroom eater. In fact, just like today's guest, Ben, who ironically started a gourmet mushroom farm in Montana called Sporadic. I met Ben through Peter Lee from Coba Coffee, who I interviewed last summer. When I started Farm to Future, Peter reached out and he was like, you gotta talk to this guy. He's one of the smartest people I know, and he's running one hell of a business. Lo and behold, I meet Ben, and he just lights up talking about mushrooms and how he started this business with zero dollars and no agriculture or business background to now building this booming business that serves restaurants like the Yellowstone Club. And the craziest part is how Ben started all this during his PhD. He was in a microbiology program, and by day he was a mouse surgeon, and by night trying to start this mushroom thing. And as it turns out, there's quite some overlap between microbiology and mushroom cultivation, which we'll get into. One of the coolest parts about hearing Ben talk is he's very transparent about the ups and downs of the business side. He even shares his startup costs down to the dollar amount and some of the technical aspects of mushroom farming. So if you're someone who's thinking about starting a business or even thinking about reevaluating your career, whether it be in food or otherwise, this episode was made for you. If you're new to the show, welcome and be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. Also, super fun, we did a little video tour of the sporadic facility, so go check that out on Instagram at farm.2.future. All right, enjoy the show. Live here in the studio with Ben, the mushroom guy. In my head was like the Muffin Man. Do you remember that song? Yeah, I get that a lot. (laughs) I get people singing me that song, but you know the mushroom, yeah. Right, right. (laughs) So you have a you have a fun story pivoting from studying the gut brain connection and working with mice and then pivoting to growing gourmet mushrooms. Can you give us a little background of how you got into the mushroom world? So I moved out to Montana back in 2017 to uh, work on a PhD here at Montana State University. It was like an interdisciplinary molecular bioscience degree, which basically means I'm fascinated with science, but I have no idea what I want to do with it. So they let you rotate all over the campus, all over different departments until you find something that clicks. And I was co-advised by two different advisors, uh, Dr. Seth Walk and Doug Kaminsky. And in their labs, we were studying the gut microbiome, specifically focused on inflammatory bowel disease. I I found an interest in the gut-brain axis, how your gut microbiome influences cognition and different controls that your brain has over your body and these different feedback loops. So... Near the end of my time there, I was being trained as a mouse neurosurgeon, sort of, where I would actually keep these mice alive on anesthesia, and I would cut them open, and I would do a live (laughs) surgery, and I was working to sever the the vagus nerve that connects the brain to the gut, and sort of break the, like, literally break the gut-brain axis, or gut-brain connection, and and we were going to study how that affects the mouse physiology and the gut. And so, I mean, I, I literally found myself in, like, the coolest, most exciting project I could possibly 
think up and I was still like totally miserable. So I was about two and a half years into grad school and I wasn't necessarily bad at it, but I was just miserable. I couldn't picture any future or any doors that would open with a PhD in microbiology that I was ever going to be happy to walk through. And those doors would be like continuing in academia or yeah, like the pharma company? Exactly. The way I saw it was like, okay, you go into industry and like probably end up working on like drug development or mm -hmm. some private research institution or you stay in academia. And my passion has always been teaching. I love teaching. When you take something that you have and you share it with someone else and you can see that look in their face like, oh, mm -hmm. like that's, that's the best feeling on the planet. So... I always figured, okay, to, to get that, I need to be a college professor. Luckily, I, I had a, a family friend tell me a couple years back, you don't need to be a teacher to teach. And he runs a plumbing company. He told me, I teach every single day. I teach people how, to, how they get their clean water. I train my employees. I constantly teach people, and it's fulfilling, and, it, and I'm not standing in front of a lecture hall. I'm not presenting to college students, but I'm a teacher. Mm. And so that was kind of a change in perspective, and I really appreciated that. And so... Through a series of weird serendipitous events and just meeting the right person at the right time. Starting in January of 2019, I was teaching a, a general microbiology lab. I had all my students introduce themselves. And this one student tells me, yeah, fun fact about me, when I lived down in Mississippi, I owned and operated a commercial gourmet mushroom farm. And I just looked at him and was like, dude, we should talk. He goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, we started kind of meeting on the side, and we, we'd meet at this brewery every Tuesday, and got kind of kind of low key, you know. We didn't, I didn't know if there's any weird conflict of interest if I like start a business with one of my students or anything. So we kind of just started. It was pretty informal, just him telling me what you know gourmet mushroom industry looks like, teaching me some of the basics. And then once he wasn't my student anymore, we decided to form an LLC. We formed Sporadic at the brewery on my laptop. In June of nice. 2019, we, we had nothing other than a really cool name and a logo that my roommate's girlfriend had designed for us. We saw at that point, we start looking all over town. We're looking at people's attic spaces, their garages, their basements, storage units, sheds, everywhere. Uh, and we just, we, we're trying to find a, a spot where we could do this. We didn't know what we were doing. I, I certainly didn't have the idea of, like, I'm going to do this instead of grad school. Like, it was just kind of a... This is an interesting, weird little thing, and I don't quite understand it, but I feel incredibly drawn to pursuing this. And I, I never, ever, ever read books at all. And he handed me this book on growing mushrooms. And in one go, I blasted through like half of it. And I was like, sweet, um, I know what to do. And I like never picked up that book again, but I felt like I'm ready. Like I know how to grow mushrooms now. What was it about <laughs> mushrooms that like really drew you in? Was it like the growing process? Was it like cooking them and how I tasted or like, what did you love yeah. about mushrooms? So I think a lot of times when people ask that, I think they're looking for some like spiritual answer. Like, oh, I'm just like so fascinated with mushrooms and like, you know, growing up, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, it's not really that. I mean, I did, I did do a lot of mushroom hunting with my dad growing up, but uh, I think more than anything, it was, I was trained as a microbiologist in grad school and what I always loved was the actual like lab work, you know, working at a bench, working in flow hoods, sterile technique, the like culture transfers and all of that. that's what drew me into microbiology. I hated the computer work. I hated reading manuscripts. I hated the statistics. And the reality mm -hmm. is like, that's what 
99% of academia is all of that stuff. So I liked the working in the lab aspect of science. And so you get that with growing mushrooms. Uh, we ended mm. up building out my laundry room around that time as a fully automated mushroom lab. Actually, the table I'm using right here, this little tiny like four by two foot folding table, we set it up in my laundry room. We built a flow hood out of a HEPA filter and a furnace fan and a box that we made with some plywood. And I, I bought one of those little like $24 stand-up greenhouse structures that you can get from Walmart. I, I insulated it, and then I built a, a fogging unit run off a humidistat, and it was all this automation stuff that I'd never done before. And so I had a fruiting chamber, I had my humidifier, I had my flow hood. I had the whole like mushroom lab set up in one little concise spot in my laundry room. And I'd go in there and, you know, it failed a, mil a million times. It was like every, everything <laughs> that could ever go wrong would go wrong. But that's the point of a prototype is like fail on the small scale. And what, what did I, failure look like? Was it just the mushrooms didn't grow or I you just got uh, like if, mold? <laughs> I'd love to show you the, the very first mushrooms we ever grew. They were Phoenix oysters. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing at all. Like the humidity was all wrong. The temperature was all wrong. So the, the, the blocks would, they'd start to fruit these little mushroom pins and everything was all wrong. So they die. They would abort is what that's called. Mm. And then new ones would try to grow out of the aborted mushrooms. And then those Ooh. would abort. And then new ones would grow out of those. And then those would abort. And so it created these, I'm not joking, they were like fractal patterns of Whoa. mushrooms. It's, it's the weirdest thing you've ever seen. And like, these are my first mushrooms. So I chopped them up and I sought to eat them and ate them and they were terrible. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, I knew, that, I knew they would be, but I felt obligated to eat them. Um. It's kind of like a, this beautiful image of failure. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. <laughs> Well, and yeah, and failure looks like a lot of mold, a lot of bacteria, a lot of weird smells. I didn't ever think about like the spores aspect of it, like mushrooms oh, produce yeah. spores and those got to go somewhere. So I had to like find a way to filter those and funnel them out of my house and all this stuff. And uh, it was a great learning experience. Over time, I, like over f maybe four months or so, I like really dialed in my cultivation technique and I like got, I got pretty good at all the culture transfers and how to inoculate bags, how to pasteurize substrate. At that point, we had a 55-gallon drum and a turkey burner sitting out in our driveway, and we would pasteurize a bale of straw, like 160 degrees for like two and a half hours. I'd sit out there and toggle oh my the flame, and it was a nightmare. It was awful. It was, it was, we did everything wrong, but that's, that's just part of the process. Eventually, we get it pretty dialed, and I'm kind of looking for how are we going to actually scale this thing up and make it into a business. And meanwhile... No one in grad school knows I'm doing this at all. Other than my roommates, no one knows I'm like thinking about being a mushroom farmer. So you're like mouse surgeon by day and like mushroom farmer by night. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Actually, so the dude I was doing the mouse surgery with, I was like, dude, I gotta tell you something. Like I've been keeping this to myself. I've, I've got this thing that I'm working on. I was so giddy about it. We have like the okay. anesthesia uh, set up and all that. And I'd be in gown and like sterile procedure and cutting open mice and like talking about growing these pink oysters back in my basement. <laughs> And so over time, eventually, that friend of mine who I formed the business with, he had some health complications come up, and eventually he told me, hey, I need to withdraw from all of this, and I need to move back home to be closer with family. And it was really tough, but I understood 100% why he needed to do that. 
there was a period there where I thought, okay, well, that's, that's it. This was fun while it lasted. We had a good run. I had no money. I had zero money. I had like 500 bucks to my name probably at that time. I was a poor grad student. Right. He had, probably he not had some money. He worked a lot of construction. He had saved up money. He was going to fund the whole thing. And then I was going to be the scientist. And he was the builder. He was a carpenter and a, you know, he knew how to build. And uh, I was going to be kind of the brains and the, the business and the science aspect of it. And so now I don't have any of that. So I don't know what I'm doing. I've never run a business. I've only grown mushrooms in my basement. I have no money. Okay, it was fun while it lasted and I kind of let it die. And my roommate at the time, he's like, dude, this is incredible. Like, this is how it needed to go. You mm. now have full creative control over this whole process and you can do it how you want to do it. He kind of like snapped some sense into me and, and really picked me up. And uh, I decided, you know, heck, let's give her a go. Let's see what happens. And so another weird serendipitous thing, I, I run into who is right now my part-time employee, Dylan Fishman. He runs Fox Club Flower Farms. He's located in Bozeman on the same property that we're located on. I ran into him at the farmer's market. And I don't care for flowers at all. Like, honestly, I just, like, they do nothing for me. So this is why it's extra weird. I just felt inclined to walk up to this flower farmer booth and just start talking with this guy. And I was like, you know, where are you guys located? Like, what are you doing? And one thing leads to another. He tells me there's some land out here and tells me how to get in contact with Three Hearts Farm. I go back home and I find their website and I read their mission statement. And I'm like, man, this just seems like a great place and the right kind of people. And I spend like two hours crafting like one paragraph email, like just like the <laughs> most perfect email ever. Hey, you know, I read your mission statement. I think our values and our ideals about clean living and organic farming, I think a lot of this aligns. I'd love to come out and pitch you this idea about starting a mushroom farm. If you'd be willing to give me a little bit of your time. And she's like, yeah, come on out this Sunday. I was like, oh. wow. <laughs> yes. Yes. Those um, two hours were worth it. Yeah. So we come out here, and this is actually my, my buddy, he was still involved at that point. Within 20, 30 minutes, it's me and him, and then the two owners of the farm were literally sitting cross-legged in a field just talking in this beautiful, sunny day, the breeze is blowing, like, it just felt like home. Like, I looked over mm. at my, my business partner at the time, and, and we had this look of, like, this is it. Like we got it. You could feel it in your heart. You could feel it in your gut. Like this is home. We found it. That was when he ended up withdrawing from the business, actually bought his half of the business for a dollar. Uh, <laughs> over the next little chunk of time, I meet a lot of the right people at some weird hippie retreat where I went and stayed in teepees for three days out in Tom Minor Basin here in Montana. I meet a girl named Allie Moxley and she is then going to probably be my business partner is what it seemed at that point. She had a little bit of business background. She had uh, an immense fascination with mushrooms. She actually had a chanterelle tattooed on her arm. That's kind of how we got put in contact with each other. She tells me one day, she's like, hey, you know, there's this Blackstone Launchpad, like business startup organization that like some universities offer for students who have ideas who want to try to like flush them out. And she's like, we, we should like go in there and check them out. I know sometimes they do like competitions and stuff to win money. And, and we walk in there one morning at like 9 a.m. And we just walk right in the front door. And this guy, I swear, he looks like he's like eight foot tall. His name's Trevor Huffmaster. <laughs> he turns around and goes, whoa, you guys just walked right in here? No appointment or anything? Love it. Love it. Come on, sit down. Tell me, what do you got? <laughs> and, and, he, and, and he was so engaged. And I just like 
I've been growing mushrooms in my basement and this thing. I'm done with that. I'm talking to Three Hearts Farm. I'm looking to scale it up. We want to blah, 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 blah. By this point, everyone in the launch pad's paying attention, and they come over, and they're listening. <gasps> this dude wheels over a chart, and he's like, dude, you're three steps into, like, the five steps of starting a business. You had, like, the ideation. You built the prototype. Now you're looking to expand. Like, you're, you're like, following it, like, to the T. And I was like, oh, cool. I didn't know that. So they're like... We've got this business pitch competition coming up where you stand up in front of a, a room full of, it's going to be like 70 business students, but there's going to be a panel of four judges that are all venture capitalists. Jake Jabs from the Jake Jabs Business School here at Montana State is wow. a very, very wealthy and successful entrepreneur. He's like one of the main hosts. It's his event. And they're like, yeah, so we've got this competition coming up. Applications are due tomorrow, but Oof. we really think you guys have something here, so you should try to put it together. So we walk out of there and we look at each other and it's like, game on, here we go. And for the next like 24 hours, it was like we had to put together a slide deck. We had to put together a three minute pitch application video and we had to answer all these essay questions. But we also have like grad school. So it was like, you go do this, you go do this. I'm going to work on the presentation. I'll work on the essays. Like hopefully at some point I figure out how to like make a video and <laughs> somehow it all comes together in the last second and we get accepted. 12 teams got accepted. Later, when we actually do the competition, we end up winning. We take first wow. place. Damn. And it was only 1500 bucks, but it was like 42 applied, 12 got wow. in. We, f we took first on an idea that's like literally fueled by like passion and excitement and literally zero background in business or agriculture. Just mad validation from Jake Jabs himself. Like, like yeah. that. for him to pick us as like, no, you guys got something. That was the day I was like, okay, this isn't just an idea. This is the point where I start telling people about it, and I'm going to start leaning into it. Long story short, me and Allie, over time, we, we compete in a lot of different pitch competitions. We secure a good number of grants. We get into some fellowships. COVID happens, and we end up getting some, like, COVID funding, like a $5,000, like, pivot fellowship, something or other. Allie helps me bring in a ton of money. Not a ton of money. It was, like, 38000 which to me was a ton of money. I had none to start. And then meanwhile, I work odd jobs left and right, like sun up to sundown. I'm like picking up dog poop and painting people's houses and mowing grass and raking leaves and roofing and siding and construction. And I'm just working my butt off. Like we need, we have a funding gap of like 20 grand that needs to get filled. And we're doing all these wow. pitch competitions and grants, but the startup cost of this business ended up being about $75,000. And when I started, I had nothing. So Jeez. I had to like create all of that. And I refused to take on investors. I refused to take on a loan. And so Why I, is that? I want the ability to fail. If that makes sense. Like if it doesn't work and I'm using someone else's money, like I just feel like you get yourself into a position that can cause some problems. My perspective on investors was always, even if someone owns a half of a half of a percent of my company, they got their toes in it. Like they have a say. I need to have full creative control over this whole process. I don't think it ever would have worked if I had a partner. And then mm -hmm. Allie ended up not wanting to join as a partner, but instead be sort of a consultant and uh, just a close friend. And she's very highly involved in what we do, but she has no stake in the company. We worked out our own deal for all of the, the work that she did with the pitch competitions and all that. But it, it became very important to me to own the whole thing. Cause then if it fails tomorrow, then cool. I walk out, I have no yeah. debt and right. I go get a job. It's you all know? just on you.
Yeah, it, I don't know. It's like I, I guess I need a. It's I just need a way out. If if for some reason it were to not work, I don't want to have to make other people happy with my dream. I guess if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. I could but keep going on like how we got here, but you know, I designed the facility with the Hicks family. With Josh Hicks tells me one day he's like, you know, I'm a woodworker. Like we own Hicks Woodworking. We we don't need to just like half-ass this project. We can build the thing to your design and make the most perfect mushroom farm according to what you know that to be. Oh man, when he told me that, I bawled my eyes out. I was like, this, <laughs> this is incredible. And and by us doing everything, we built everything. We poured the foundation, we did the excavation, we did the framing, the drywall, the painting, the roofing, the electrical, the plumbing. I mean, we did everything. So what is probably a $200,000 facility, we completed for like 30 grand. You know, we had it appraised by an independent contractor and they said, yeah, like 120 grand just for the skeleton of the building. So we did that for under 30 grand because we did everything. And I also, I was working construction sites and I'd see like, oh, there's a trailer full of lumber over there that they're just going to get rid of. Can I have that? Like all of the internal framing for this building, it's all refurbished lumber that I snagged off a construction site. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. The, The like porch area, it's all hard paneling that we repurposed off of some other hard houses here on the farm. When we started this, I thought the full-on startup cost was going to be like $27,000 and it ended up being about 75000 which is incredibly low. Like, to, If I was to yeah. say, like, hey, you want to start up a mushroom farm, you've got a parcel of land, easily you're going to need like two to $300,000 right. unless you plan on doing absolutely everything yourself. And mm. I didn't know how to do anything. So I had to learn how to do everything. Um, Yeah, or pull in the right people. Where were you off, like, in the 25 initial estimate? Like, what did you not account for? Well, we were going to buy a prefabricated shed that Mm. a farm down the road who was closing was getting rid of. I was confident I can get that shed for four and a half grand. She wanted, like, 13. I was like, it's not going to happen. I will give you four and a half grand. When you come to your senses, I have to pay for a crane to put it on a semi-truck, drive it out, and I'm going to set it down on Three Hearts Farm. And the guy had outfitted it as a walk-in cooler. So you (laughs) walked in, there was a little open space, and then there was a big enclosed room that was spray foam insulated, and it had cool bots and airflow and everything. So I was like, boom, that's the grow room. That's the fruiting chamber. This area out front's the lab. The area up above that room is the incubation room. Like done. Hmm. That's the whole mushroom farm. Like pick it up, set it down. That'll be yeah. twelve grand to get it here. We're gonna have to do all the hookups, everything. I've got to build the lab. I've got to get all the shelving. I've got to outfit it. That never would have worked. But that was the idea I pitched to Three Hearts Farm, and they were gonna go with it until one day Josh was like, "For the money you're gonna put into that, why don't we do something where we'll be happy to keep that on our land when you're done with it." As opposed mm. to this, we might not want that shed when you're done with it. And you might have to pay again to lift it up and get it moved out of here. Um, and then it grew and grew and grew. Every single time we'd meet, <laughs> we'd be like, oh, let's make it a little bit bigger. Let's make it a little bit better. Let's insulate it a little more. Let's... It was going to be a shed. And then it turned into a full-on facility. I'm really, really happy with the way it, it played out. There are ways to start a mushroom farm for five grand. I'm not the type of person who could do it that way. There's some like pretty weird high tech like pieces of equipment in here to make sure this place is like fail safe. And we got redundancy on top of redundancy. And that's kind of just like what I need to be able to sleep at night. 
mm-hmm. there's people who are fine with like throwing a little greenhouse up in their backyard and a fan and calling it good. And mm. I'm like, well, my livelihood is dependent on this. I have employees. I have a four year right. lease. I, I need the peace of mind to know this is done right. And it's yeah. going to work. How did you know there was demand for gourmet mushrooms? Like, how did you know this was going to be a good business idea? I didn't. (laughs) No, 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 that's not true. That's not true. So that original buddy of mine who I started with, he had basically identified Bozeman as a good market. And he was honorably discharged and was on a GI Bill, which he then used to put him at Montana State University just literally to put him in a place that he had identified as a good market for gourmet mushrooms. And he wanted to be in a place to find his next business partner to do it right. We looked and there was only five mushroom farms in all of Montana. And the closest one was like two hours away. So there's nothing in Bozeman. I knew there were people who had done it before us and they were successful and then they failed. And I learned why each one of them failed. And a lot of times it's because like they didn't have equipment like this. When it all of a sudden is 110 degrees in Montana and you don't have like a really powerful air conditioning system, like your HVAC system just isn't up to snuff, like you're just going to lose everything. So that's how a lot of people go under. So Bozeman's a pretty wealthy area, like to be blunt. There's definitely a good amount of money here. There's a lot of very nice restaurants, high-end restaurants. It's a very clean living area. People here are active, are healthy, are health conscious. You can just tell. It's pretty hipster. You know, gourmet mm-hmm. mushrooms are kind of a hipster, kind of a yuppie industry. It's gourmet. You're not going to be able to set up a gourmet mushroom farm in a impoverished area, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You need to do it in kind of a bougier, upscale place. And to some degree, Bozeman is that place. And even if Bozeman's not, we've got Big Sky an hour, hour and a half away. We've got the Yellowstone Club an hour and a half away. More than anything, like, I just had a gut feeling, like, the whole time, like, something I could not shake that was telling me to chase this for, like, two years. Every single day, it was all I could think about. I was just kind of, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Your microbiome was tingling, so to speak. (laughs) Exactly. There you go. (laughs) So how did you go about, you know, did you just, like, start contacting restaurants and were like, hey, we're starting up this mushroom farm? So in October 2020, there's this like eight day period of my life that is the most action packed, intense, sleep deprived, impressive, like eight days of my life. It's when we had that pitch competition that was on like day five. But what also happened in that time was when we went in for our coaching session to the Blackstone Launchpad, this guy tells me about this grant through the Department of Agriculture called the Growth Through Ag Grant, which is about helping fund new, innovative, sustainable forms of agriculture here in Montana. You know, like we've got a pool of money to help fund like different agriculture so that we're not just funding wheat and barley, which is historically what Montana is. We just fit the docket really well. And I couldn't ignore this. Unfortunately, we realized the deadline was seven days later, two or three days after the pitch competition. And we have nothing but like an idea at this point. And like, I don't know if you've ever written a grant. This is like a real grant through a government agency, something you should probably work on for two or three months. Me and Allie both had experience in grant writing in, in grad school. Um, like this is some, this is no joke. She was like adamant, like let's, uh, let's focus on the pitch competition. And I could not sleep. I was like, I can't tell you why, but I, I can't ignore this. I know we could wait and just try to get it next year. But uh, 
what do we have to lose other than sleep? Like verbatim, that's what I said. (laughs) What do we have to lose other than sleep? Let's do both. And so it was like, all right, you work on the pitch competition. I'm going to start working on this grant, figure out what we need. And it was a lot of coordination. And in the span of those eight days, we put together everything. We put together a full-on like 10-page business plan. We figured out how to do financial projections and did financial projections for the next three years. I figured out every piece of equipment that I needed to purchase and got cost quotes and estimates on everything. I found my suppliers for my raw materials and got quotes for them. I met with Three Arts Farm over and over and over, and we rehashed out and finalized the lease agreement for a four-year lease. We finalized the building design, the, the floor plans for the facility. I mean, we went in. We got it all. The only thing we didn't have is market validation. So we blasted out an email to like 10 restaurants. And a couple of them get back to us that are like, well, some of them are like, okay, you know, cool. Like, let us know. I'm sure on their end, they're like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like, I'm sure, <laughs> like, I'm sure two years from now when this, this won't ever play out. But like two of them, Open Range and Whistle Pig Korean, two restaurants here in Bozeman, had me come in and they're ecstatic. The chefs at both of these restaurants are like over the moon. They're just so, so excited about a mushroom farm coming to Bozeman. One of them tells me like, commit us for 20 pounds a week and we'll take any varieties you can grow. The other one says, this is COVID capacity. We could do 40 pounds a week and at regular capacity, we'd do 70. And so right there, that's 60 to 90 pounds of mushrooms a week. We're talking 900 bucks a week in two restaurants. After that meeting with that chef at Open Range, I walked out to my car. I start screaming and punching the air. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And then I just start bawling my eyes out. I'm like, oh my God, this is This is real. And that was when I was like, I'm dropping out of grad school. I'm done. Ah! I'm done. (laughs) So that was the market validation we had was like two restaurants that were like, yeah, we'll do it. Damn. And you're, are you still working with those two restaurants today? Yep, both of them, yep. Damn. They're, they're ride or dies. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, they've so, been, and they were our very first two restaurants, and it's been 14 months now and haven't wow. skipped a week. And what does the business look like today? Like, how many restaurants do you supply to? How, how much do you grow each week? So we're in about 10 restaurants and then one grocery store. We work with the Yellowstone Club. They pick up about... 80 pounds a week right now. Most of it's right here in Bozeman, though. We do farm stands every Friday. We do farmer's markets, and those are a fantastic experience. It's like three mm-hmm. hours straight of wow. as fast as you can possibly sell mushrooms. It's the best experience ever, every time. <laughs> We're ideally growing three to 400 pounds a week. It's so strange. We had like two and a half months where that was very consistent. It was like three to four even up to 450 pounds a week, we're just crushing it. And that was in between the like summer and winter tourism. And as soon as everything's like ramping up every, like all kinds of new accounts, yeah, double our order. Like, you know, can we start up with you? All of a sudden we're having all kinds of issues in the grow room. And oh no. We're down to like 250 pounds a week. And oh, we're damn. just barely scraping by to like fill orders. And something as simple as like the temperature in the grow room changing three or four degrees and like, boom third of your crop is gone for a month. Really? Okay. Very (laughs) delicate. It's a very, very, very delicate balance. You've got humidity, temperature, lighting, fresh air intake, and you're just kind of watching and learning from these mushrooms. Are you too dry? Are you too wet? Are you 
you know, getting a, a bacterial blotch infection? Are you starting to pin and then abort, meaning like temperature might not be right? It's an obsessive balance. <laughs> and do, does each variety also need different inputs or exactly. are they generally? Yeah, okay. all these different varieties have their own set of parameters that they like. And so you've got different temperature parameters and you're trying to catch all of them. And we try to grow like nine to 11 different varieties of mushrooms. And so wow. you're trying to get the temperature and the humidity and the lighting and the airflow like right in the exact spot. That Venn everything diagram. Happen. And so, yeah, maybe it'd be if we just grew one type of mushroom, it'd be like, cool, let's just grow what we know that one likes. And then we've got a better range for failure. But I don't like the idea of a monoculture. Like, let's say you only grow blue oysters and then something happens with your blue oyster strain, you're done. Mm. Whereas now we've got 11 different varieties. If our blue oysters go down, that's fine. We've got four other types of oysters and, you know, five other types of mushrooms aside from that. Right now, we're, we're having issues with our king trumpets and our black pearl mushrooms. But I contact all the chefs who get those mushrooms. and I say, hey, here's the situation. Are you okay with getting mixed oyster cases and lion's mane and chestnuts and like all these other ones that we do have? And every single one of those chefs is like, yep, I appreciate the heads up. We'll work with that. Like, let us know when the other ones are back up. And that's something I feel you can only have on like a small scale local farm like this. Because also all of those chefs, or at least the majority of them, I get them out here and I give them a tour of my farm. I'm like, I want you to see what we're doing. I want you mm-hmm. to know where your food comes from. I want to put all those chefs in here and let them see exactly how this works so that they understand. Well, it starts in the lab on a Petri dish and then it goes into grain and then it goes into substrate blocks and then it goes into incubation and then it goes into the grow room and then it fruits. And it's like, that's anywhere from six to 12 weeks before mm-hmm. I can have that ready. So to yeah. be able to lay that out is, is really cool. Yeah, there's Ben the teacher coming out outside yeah. the classroom. Yeah, well, that's love exactly it. like I get my teaching fixed every day. And that's yeah. why I love farmer's markets. You'll just have a, as many people that can surround your booth as possible. And I'm just like performing for like three hours. I'm like simultaneously talking to like five different people. I love it. I'm like really like ADHD, uh, if you can't tell. So like <laughs> extroverted and like super talkative me in front of a crowd of people who are just like, wow, this is so cool. Look at all these weird mushrooms. What are those? How do you cook with those? How'd you get into this? Like, oh, I could just go. It's like pure ecstasy for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What are your favorite mushrooms to cook with? Um, The ones that aren't working right now, the black pearls. Oh, man. <laughs> Up until right now, I've always swerved that question because I don't know. I'm like, I don't just eat mushrooms all day, every day. Like everyone seems to think. I've, you know, maybe I eat mushrooms once or twice a month. Like, they're okay. <laughs> when I started the business, I was living in the, like, I, right behind me, I'd set up a cot and yeah. a sleeping bag, and I'd sleep here four nights a week at least. And, I mean, I was working 100-hour weeks non-stop i had no social life lost my girlfriend at the time because i wasn't mm. paying any attention to her i mean i was right. buried in this place I, I was losing my mind for sure and at that point i created this like mound of money and then i spent it all on this building mm-hmm. i got down to a point where i had like 400 dollars to my name i timed it out i was so scared i couldn't sleep i was like i need to not only like finish the building but i need to like be growing and selling mushrooms and making a profit by Halloween. If I'm not making money and putting it in my pocket by Halloween 2020, I need to get a job. I left that detail out. My, my professors let me get out of grad school with a master's. 
But I was like, if this thing doesn't work, like I need to have a job or I will be broke. I won't be able to pay rent. And so I'd wake up on the cot. I'd go walk around the farm and I'd pick up some eggs. And I'd go in the grow room and I'd pick a big thing of mushrooms and I'd come in here and just eat like eggs and mushrooms, like three meals a day. It was freaking Oh awful. my God. <laughs> I was going to say that sounds pretty healthy. No, it was like, great. Farm it, was, fresh. It, was, it was great like three or four times, but when like that's all you're doing. Yeah, that could get yeah, old pretty I, It left a weird taste in my mouth. I, I got pretty <laughs> sick of mushrooms for a while and so I didn't oh. eat them for a couple months. Oh man. <laughs> So growing up, I really only knew like three varieties of mushrooms. You know, you see at the store, you got like the portobello, the enoki and shiitake mushrooms. Yeah. Why aren't more varieties of mushrooms sold widely? I think it mostly has to do with shelf life, like the durability of the mushrooms. So all of those, I guess I don't know about enoki. Um, those to me seem really delicate, but like button mushrooms, you know, cremini, portobello, white cap, whatever you want to call them, they're all the same. Those are all mostly grown in China. 60% of the mushrooms oh. in America all just come from China. So that's the one type of mushroom, you know, those in shiitake. You can grow them up and you can store them for a month. You can throw them in a container. You can throw them in shipping containers, drive them across the world. They can sit in warehouses, sit on grocery stores, and they're still mm. fresh a month or so after they've been harvested. With oyster mushrooms or lion's mane or any of the ones we're growing, they just have such a terrible shelf life. From the time you harvest, you want to cook with them within two weeks. It's a demand that can sort of only be met locally. And a lot goes, if you look behind me, I mean, you can see there's a lot of weird equipment in here. A lot goes into making these varieties of mushrooms. They're not grown the way button mushrooms are grown in huge vats of compost in massive warehouses that take up hundreds of acres of land. This Mm -hmm. is like a small amount of land and a lot of really complicated really detail-oriented procedures with how much goes into it, it kind of has to be a more expensive product too. Just to Mm. break even, we have to charge a lot more. I think something you're going to see over the next five years or so is people like me are going to be popping up everywhere. This information is becoming so readily available, mostly through YouTube, honestly. People like uh, Andrew Reed of Mossy Creek Mushrooms, they're the people I learned everything from. They started out about eight years ago with a grow kit on a table. And they got to a point where now they own a warehouse and they're doing like 2,000 pounds a week. They have shown their whole progression and they're constantly teaching. Hey, here's the new thing we're doing in the lab this week. Hey, here's the new strains. Hey, here's how you do airflow and humidity in the grow room. And that information's becoming more and more readily available. It's definitely coming. I think in the next five years, there's probably not going to be a populated town across the country that doesn't have a mushroom farm. And if I can get there fast enough, it'll be sporadic mushroom farms all over the country. <laughs> yeah. Well, is, is that the plan? Are you, are you guys looking to expand beyond Montana? I don't know, honestly. Quality is everything in this business. Like, if you can't produce the absolute best, high-quality, perfect mushrooms, then don't do it. Like, that's what this business is. We're not doing the button mushrooms where you grow two tons of it a month. You're, you're trying to grow a small amount of incredibly high-quality food for high-quality restaurants and for people at farmer's markets to go home and make really high-quality food. So the only way I see that being feasible is if you expand locally, setting up little satellite facilities all over the place. So Mm. franchising, I guess. I know people don't like the word franchise, but that's kind of it, right? This particular facility could exist anywhere on the planet. 
it could exist in Alaska, it could exist in Florida, it could exist in Costa Rica. Like, as mm. long as you can get power and plumbing and all of the, you know, basic utilities to it, we control the environment in here. So right now outside it's 17 degrees and snowing and the summer it was oh, 110 wow. degrees, you know, and the, and the grow room is going to still do the same exact thing no matter what. Just to play devil's avocado for a second here, it sounds like you're creating this lab environment that needs all these inputs, lighting, electricity, all these things. Where does the sustainability play come in? Yeah. How do you pitch this as like an organic sure. or sustainable farm? So I'm, I'm fully transparent and honest. Like I will never oversell this for something it's not. I'm not going to sit here and tell you like this is the most perfectly sustainable form of agriculture ever. Like it's not. And I hate when people try to sell it like it is. So there are a lot of elements to this that are incredibly sustainable and, and re regenerative. But we heat this place with propane. We have a lot of plastic waste. We run a lab. And with a lab, there's a lot of plastic waste. Like I'm going to be completely transparent with that. And anyone who runs a mushroom farm and tries to sell it as like this 100% sustainable form of agriculture, they're just lying to you. That being said, it's a pretty sustainable form of agriculture in the grand scheme of things. The inputs that go into this are sawdust and soy hulls. So sawdust is a byproduct from the timber industry. Soy hulls are, my understanding is it's what's left over after they press soybeans to get the oil extracted. So we use that as our inputs and we get those delivered by the ton. And so they're byproducts. Again, not trying to oversell it. It's not that they are waste products. They do have other purposes. You can heat your home with fuel pellets. You can use soy hulls to supplement animal feed. But they are byproducts from other industries. And that's what we use as our substrate to grow the mushrooms. Once everything's fruited out, the block of sawdust and soy hulls that has been grown in with mycelium and is decaying, once that's done, that's like the most perfect compost that we then collect outside. So we're doing 155 12-pound blocks per week. So that's a ton of organic material that is being used to generate compost, which then goes on to a local organic farm here in Bozeman. So there's a cool little like cycle for you that I think is relatively regenerative, sustainable. But the unfortunate reality of that is the blocks that you package the you know sawdust and soy hulls in, that's all packaged in a plastic bag. They've got this little filter patch here so that gas exchange can happen, but microbes can't come in. And that's what you grow your mushrooms out of. This, in my opinion, is the one area where the industry absolutely falls short. I do see at some point someone coming up with a truly compostable bag that would replace these plastic bags. But right yeah. now that is not the case. There are people who market oxy biodegradable bags. My opinion on that is that it's a total marketing scam um, because oxy biodegradable basically means they break down into tiny little pieces of plastic. They don't fully break down and it requires mm. a ton of oxygen to do so, which is okay. not there in landfills. So at huh. the end of the day, whether this is plastic or oxybiodegradable, it's still plastic so, waste that's ending up in the landfill. I right. know that's going to change at some point. Like there's no possible way that, that some material science lab can't find a way to make a compostable bag that can handle the steam sterilization and hold up and then, you know, not like break down in a compost pile. I think we'll get there, mm. but we're not there yet. All that being said, as far as being organic, I mean, we're just using sawdust, soy hulls, and grain. 
There's no need to add any sort of fungicides or pesticides or antibiotics or growth hormones or any of those inputs. None of that. I don't even think there are options for that in mushroom farming. It really just comes down to really good technique. Being super hyper vigilant for anywhere that contamination could come into play. We're the ones who make sure our crop doesn't get infected. It has nothing to do with mother nature. It has nothing to do with GMOs. It has nothing to do with that. It's just really good technique. Lots of filtration. I'm really happy to say like we have almost no contamination and we've been running for like a year. They say if you can stay under like 10, 15% contamination, you're doing pretty good. But if we also have a brand new building that doesn't have a hundred years of bacteria Mm. caked into the walls, you know, a brand new lab with all brand new flow hoods and everything. It is a really cool closed loop where what we're generating is all from byproducts and then it turns into decaying matter that is used to fertilize another organic farm. I think that's a really cool system. I bet you there's a lot of people listening who are thinking, well, you know, you can use complete waste products like coffee grounds and straw. It's just not feasible. Unless someone can find a way to pelletize coffee grounds, like putting it into pellets, like the fuel pellets. And that's just because of ease of bagging them up. To use an automatic bagger allows the, the workflow that we need. Maybe there's a way, but like you do it like one time and you're like, okay, that is so labor intensive and the yield isn't what it needs to be. And no, we're going to go with the gold standards and that is Mm. sawdust and soy hulls or wheat bran or alfalfa or, you know, there's other options. It's such a young industry. I mean, like, I really think I got in right when the, the boom of information started being available and now people are paying attention and they're seeing this industry explode. And timing-wise, you got in right during COVID, too, which is so, like yeah. low low season, you know, for yeah. restaurants and things. So who knows how big that'll grow. Um, yeah, I feel, I feel good about that. I know COVID wasn't necessarily a recession, but they say if you can start a business during a recession, like you can survive anything. You know, gourmet, gourmet sector is like kind of extra. It's a bonus. It's right. not essential, probably. You know, we can say we're <laughs> essential because we're growing food. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, it's like lobster, you know, is, mm. is lobster really, is it all that? Do we need it? But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we're able to do it so far during COVID. So that makes me feel really optimistic about normal times if we ever get there again. Yeah. I mean, food is one of the things you can still enjoy during a pandemic. So there's your essential element. I guess in, in closing, where can folks find you and, and learn more about you? Shoot yeah. me a message on Instagram or Our website has one of those little mail me a question or whatever submission boxes. My phone number is on there. You can reach out to me. Give me a call. Shoot me a text. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Ben. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.